Thank you for being here. Thank you for joining us online. Thank you for being a part of the Hammock Street community. It's kind of interesting now how, how that is, that we are both virtual and in person. I guess that's the way the world is today. We're really glad that you're able to join us, no matter how you join us this morning. We're continuing on this morning in our series called Follow. We've been doing it for a little while now. Today is part six. It's an eight-part series, so just a few more. If you'd like to listen to any of the previous messages, whether you're listening to them for the first time or re-listening to them, you can find them on our website, hammockstreetchurch.com, or our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search the word or the words Hammock Street Church, and uh, you'll find us there. What I want to do now is start off with another quick prayer. I know you're still feeling the effects of Matt's prayer, but let's pray because then we're going to dig into our study today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for gathering us together this morning as your ecclesia, as your called out community. We thank you for the hearts that you've brought here, for the open minds, for the, for the love that we have, and for the desire that we have to get to know you better. So God, as we continue on this morning, we would ask that you would use this time to both encourage us and strengthen our faith. We thank you for all that you do in Jesus' name. Amen. So, while I've been working on this series, I've been thinking a lot about when I actually became a believer, when I actually started following Jesus, and I did that long before I even knew what it meant to follow Jesus. And that's because when I became a believer, when when I prayed that prayer, when I said, Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner Lord, I ask for your forgiveness. I believe that you died for my sins and rose from the dead, having defeated all sin. And now, God, I turn from those sins. I repent. That's what repentance means. I repent. I turn away from those sins. And I give you my heart, God. And I give you my life. God, I want to trust you. And I want to follow you forever as my Lord and Savior. And when I prayed that prayer, I didn't really understand anything at all about Jesus. I was told that in order to follow Jesus, that's what I had to do, but that's about it. That's the only thing I knew is that I needed to devote my life to following Jesus, but I knew nothing about him. And as such, when I share the gospel every week, which I have that privilege to do now, I make sure to talk about the following Jesus part of becoming a Christian. It's not just about the belief, it is about the following. Now, I have a weird coming to faith story, as, as you guys, most of you know, I didn't grow up in the faith and I came to Jesus as a, as a grown-up, but most people have a different coming to faith story. And if you became a believer when you were young, as most people do, there, there's a possibility, a good possibility that you came to faith because you wanted to avoid the alternative to faith. Because your priest or your minister or your pastor, even your youth leader, probably explained that the alternative to faith was you're going to hell. And that's a scary alternative. So you became a believer to avoid going to hell. Of course you did. I mean, who wants to go to hell? I have to say that carefully because if I use different inflection, I'll be saying bad things up here and I don't want to do that. But it's probable that you didn't really think in terms of loving God the Father or loving Jesus, God the Son. Indeed, you probably thought about it in terms of loving and preserving yourself. Actually, if you came 
to faith later in life, you probably also came to faith because you were going through something in your life and you were looking for help to solve your issues. And when I think about my story, that was my underlying motivation. My underlying motivation coming to Jesus was very me-centered or self-centered. And, and that means that I, along with many of us, came to faith more as Jesus' consumers than Jesus' followers. Well, that said, Christianity has really served me well in all those years since I became a believer. It's kept me out of trouble. It's kept me from wandering into compromising situations. It kept me from violating my conscience in, in, my, in my work. I practiced law before I became a pastor, even when it would have been the easiest path to take. Following Jesus, even as a consumer, works really well. Following Jesus, even as a consumer, will make you a better spouse. It'll make you a better boyfriend or girlfriend. It'll make you a better parent. It'll make you a better friend to other people. It'll make you a better employee. It'll make you a better employer. Even if you don't currently think that Jesus is the son of God or you don't currently believe that the New Testament is divinely inspired, is, is inspired by God, following the teachings of Jesus will still make you a better person. And all of that serves you. Indeed, when you read the New Testament, every one of Jesus' followers starts off in that exact same way. Every one of Jesus' followers started off by asking themselves the question, well, what's in it for me? Why would I follow you? What's in it for me? We saw this last week. Jesus was talking to his disciples about how things were about to get bad for them. And then, and then Peter got up in Jesus' ear and, and, and he said, come on, boss. Let's cut it out with the negative stuff. You're doing great. We're doing great. We don't need to go all negative. They love us. The crowds love us. This is going really well. And remember, Jesus turned to Peter and he turned to the disciples and he rebuked Peter and he said, get behind me, Satan, which seemed a little harsh to us, right? Because Peter didn't have God's concerns in mind when he said that. He had his own human concerns in mind. In other words, Peter at that time was a Jesus consumer. Peter was following Jesus just for the benefits, just for the perks. Jesus told Peter that he would have to give up on his human agenda and go all in on Jesus' agenda. We talked about that last week. Well, anyway, later on, Peter was listening to Jesus and he was undoubtedly pondering how he'd left his family and how he'd left his family business to follow this rabbi. And then when Jesus got to the end of his lesson, Peter spoke up and Peter spoke up about Peter. He spoke up about himself. Peter was still all about Peter. And here's what he said in Matthew 19, verse 27. Peter answered him. He says to Jesus, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? What then will there be? What's in it for me? Peter was still thinking, listen, I don't mind following you. I don't mind giving up some of the, the things, but surely there's a big reward at the end of this, isn't there? What's in it for us? Old habits, man. Old habits die hard, as we all know. And then at the very end of Jesus's earthly ministry, when he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, remember that? The New Testament tells us that at that time, all of Jesus' followers, they left him. They abandoned him. They scattered. They probably figured, whoa, 
if they arrested Jesus, we're probably next. There is nothing in this for us. We are out of here. So they all abandoned Jesus. They all abandoned him at the same time. Why? Because they were still Jesus consumers. When they perceived that there was nothing in the movement left for them, they left the movement. They were following Jesus for only as long as it worked out for them. Now, before we get too high and mighty or get all judgy, didn't we all start following Jesus this way too? We just talked about that. Now, when you're thinking about that, let's keep moving on. Because interestingly, by the end of the New Testament, it's amazing to see how many of those people who abandoned Jesus came back to Jesus. And what's also cool to see is that Jesus forgave every one of them. And then those people took the good news about Jesus to the ends of the earth and literally gave their lives. They all died for Jesus with one exception. And they didn't die for the things that Jesus taught. They died for the thing that they saw. They saw a resurrected Savior. And it was that resurrected Jesus that caused them to give up on their personal agendas and embrace God's agenda for the world as well as God's agenda for their own lives. That's how they became full-fledged followers of Jesus. But it took a while. It's a process. And not everybody made the transition to a full follower of Jesus. Indeed, there was one person among the 12 who didn't. One of the most famous or infamous people in all of history did not make that transition. Do we know his name? His name was Judas Iscariot. So let's now do something that I think very few people ever do. We're going to go into a little bit of a backstory on Judas. All right, so let's figure out who this Judas guy was. Now, in the beginning of Judas's time with Jesus... Judas saw Jesus the same way that the other apostles did. They were all waiting for God to send a Messiah who would deliver Israel and reestablish it as an influential nation. Remember, they were under the heel of the Romans and they were sort of a beaten down nation. And and the Jews expected that, that God would do that, would rescue them by putting someone on the throne that would depose the current ruler and placed the Holy Land under the leadership of a Jewish king or a Jewish savior. So the disciples thought that maybe Jesus was that guy. They thought maybe Jesus was the guy who's going to overthrow Rome and and become the ruler, become the leader of that area of of what of what we now call Israel. And so they watched and they waited. And they saw Jesus and, and they noticed he certainly spoke as one who had authority. And as they listened to him, they found that he made a ton of sense. So they were feeling pretty darn confident that he's the guy. He's the guy they were waiting for. They thought he was the one. But we have hindsight as our guide. We get to look back. And as we look back, it seems that Judas, for him, Jesus was always just a means to an end. See, Judas believed that as Jesus rose to power, if you were one of Jesus' guys, well, you're going to rise to power with him. What are they? They say a rising tide floats all of the ships. But there were probably some things about Jesus that Judas didn't like, things that bugged Judas. See, like most people at the time, Judas believed that the Messiah was going to overthrow the Roman occupation and take a position of power ruling over the nation of Israel. 
Now, Judas may have been following Jesus solely in order to benefit from his association with him as the new reigning political power. Again, if I'm around the power, some of that power rubs off on me. And no doubt Judas would have expected to be among the ruling elite after this Jesus revolution that he expected. But by the time of Judas's betrayal, Jesus had made it pretty clear to Judas that he planned to die. He didn't plan to start a rebellion against Rome. So Judas may have just assumed, as the Pharisees assumed, that since Jesus wouldn't overthrow the Romans, that he couldn't possibly be the Messiah that they were expecting. Now, not only that, the Hebrew Bible indicated that it'd be the religious leaders who would announce the Messiah's arrival to the people. But Jesus did not get on well with the religious leaders. In fact, Jesus publicly humiliated those religious leaders at every opportunity. And then there was this incident in a place called Bethany. And this incident was the last straw for Judas. We're going to look at that incident today. And we're going to see that in Judas's actions, we can actually see a little bit of ourselves, painful as that is. And we can see that we can't follow Jesus unless and until we recognize the problem and remedy the problem. Because the truth is, there's something in me and there's something in you that's focused on our own agendas. And because of that, We spend our days trying to influence God to get God to do his work on our agendas while we give very little thought to his agenda. Think about it. Now, I'm not going to throw any rocks at anybody in here, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say that there is at least one person in America, all right, one person in America who went to church this morning with that exact thought in mind. This morning, somewhere in America, someone thought, hmm, maybe if I go to church today, God will see me and he'll go, oh, wow, Michael's in church today. Elizabeth's in church today. Let's do something nice for him. Let's do something nice for her. People are thinking, this is how God's going to work. Oh, you came? Good. What do you like? I'll give you one wish. I'll grant you one wish. I mean, this is how people think. Someone is right now wondering whether there's some kind of magical combination of things. Like if I wear this shirt and I wear this bonnet and I put on these shoes and I go to church, if I do all this, there's this combination of things that'll get God to go, oh, there you are. Huh? I'm glad you're here. You're now worthy of my attention and blessing. Thanks for coming. And it's because that person is a consumer that they thought that. Actually, that's where we all start. But at some point following Jesus, your agenda and God's agenda for you are going to be in conflict. And what you do in that moment will tell you a lot about yourself. So there's our background. And with that background in mind, here's the story of Judas. So Matthew, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Matthew was there. He was one of the eyewitnesses. So we're going to start by seeing how he told the story. If you have your Bible, you're welcome to turn to Matthew 26. This is from the New International Version, but whatever version you like is totally cool. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper. Stop. We don't know much about Simon the leper other than the fact he had an unfortunate nickname. Can you imagine that's your nickname? Russell the leper. Oh, <laughs> you must be the leper, right? 
But it's interesting, we don't know really what that meant. We don't know if Simon had leprosy at that moment. We don't know if he had 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 leprosy, but it was gone. We don't know if he had leprosy, but Jesus healed him of leprosy. Like we don't know, but the nickname stuck. Nonetheless, we move on. A woman came to him with an alabaster jar of expensive, very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. The hymn, by the way, is Jesus there. And when the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Now, can you imagine how awkward that moment must have been? They're all sitting at this nice dinner party and this lady comes out and she goes to the Lord and she begins to anoint him with this really expensive ointment. Like, can you imagine going to somebody's house and when they serve you on their best silver or they put out the best china, like you pick up the fork or you pick up the cup and you go, seriously, we're gonna eat on this? How much did this cost? Do you know what you could have done with the money that you spent on this silverware? Can you imagine doing that as a guest in someone's house? I'm guessing that the conversation got really awkward from there. They're, they're looking around the house, I suspect, wondering what else they could judge the people for, judge that poor Simon the leper for. And this, this makes me think that Jesus and the disciples probably knew the family well, because I would think if you're going to be that critical, at least you're going to be critical around people you know. I can't imagine you would do that in the home of a stranger. Anyway, that's what we get from Matthew's account. Now, what's interesting about the Gospels is they all give us the story and the same story, but they give it to us from different vantage points and different angles written to different audiences. So John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, John was there too, and he gave his account. But John adds an important detail that we're going to jump out and take a look at before we go back to Matthew. See, as it turns out, it wasn't all the disciples simultaneously coming to the conclusion that this was a waste of resources. It wasn't all of them that did that. Here's John chapter 12, verse four. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. So apparently, as we find out later, Judas had his own agenda here. From the text, we can tell that it was likely that Judas kind of leaned over to someone who was sitting next to him and goes, how much do you think that perfume's worth? Isn't that about a year's wages? Can you believe that? This has happened at a dinner party. Can you believe that, right? Verse six, Judas didn't say this because he cared about the poor. Oh, now we're looking for his, his rationale. Now we're looking for his motivation. He didn't say it because he cared about the poor. He said it because he was a thief. As the keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. That's, that was the first biblical example of virtue signaling, right? How dare you pour out this expensive perfume? That could go to the poor. Really, it could go to me, right? See, Judas was the treasurer of the disciples, which, which given the fact that he was a thief, first off, makes it a very bad hire, and secondly, creates a problem. <laughs> Judas didn't care about the poor. He wanted access to the group's money for himself. Even though he was with Jesus all the time, and even though he saw everything everybody else saw, Judas had a personal agenda. And his personal agenda was so strong that he was able to follow Jesus and at the same time use Jesus for his own ends. But Jesus knew about that because Jesus knew the hearts of men, which is why it was a bad idea to ever whisper in Jesus' presence. It's probably a bad idea to have a thought in Jesus' presence. 
Because here's what happens next. Now we're going to go back to Matthew's gospel. Aware of this. So Jesus knew what Judas was thinking. Aware of this. Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. And then we're going to see a statement that politicians use, misuse all the time. Now you'll know to call them on it because I'm going to give you the whole context. So here's the first statement. Here it is. The poor you will always have with you. I can't tell you how many times I've heard someone say, well, the poor you will always have with you. But the whole statement in context looks like this. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. So Jesus is saying, listen, the poor are going to be here, but, but I'm, the, I'm your savior. I'm your Lord and I'm going. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Continuing on, verse 13, truly I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached, in other words, Jesus is saying, wherever my story is told, like, like today, you realize we're doing that right now. We're telling this story right now. Wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Think about that. We just did that. How cool is that? Today, we're fulfilling that prediction. But think about it on another level. How did Jesus, 2,000 years ago, from the armpit of the Roman Empire, know that the story about him would be told throughout the whole world, the whole world. Like, seriously, Jesus? I mean, with the exception of when his parents took him to Egypt, when he was a a child, he never got any further than about 40 miles from his home in his whole life. And he's talking about the world? The world is going to hear about him? How did he know that? All right, ponder that as we move on. Then one of the 12, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver Jesus over to you? So Judas had had enough at this point. And he thought, if Jesus is going to throw money away, if he's going to be so irresponsible as to waste our funds, the funds I want to steal, if he doesn't care anymore about becoming the Messiah and overthrowing the Romans and putting on the robes of the king, well, then I'm done with this guy. I don't need to spend any more time with this guy. And so Judas went to the chief priest and essentially he said this, I know what your problem is. Your problem isn't that you can't find Jesus. It's easy to find Jesus. Just find the biggest crowd and he's the middle. He's right there in the middle of that crowd. Your problem isn't that you can't find Jesus. Your problem is that you can't get to Jesus because the crowd will turn on you if you try to take him away. They've gone to him for healing. They're not going to take too kindly to the fact that you're trying to remove their healer. But I'm going to do you a favor, Judas said. I'm going to find a time when he's isolated and alone. And because I'm one of his closest followers, I can get you to him. I can get you in the room. I can get you next to him. What are you willing to pay for that? Verse 15, so they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over. See, Judas had determined that Judas himself had the power to deter Jesus from his mission. And those of us who follow Jesus today might want to ask Judas, have you not been paying any attention? Like, you've been with him for three years. 
Do you remember that afternoon that you guys were out in the boat and you thought you were all going to drown and you woke Jesus up and he talked to the weather and talked it into changing? Do you not remember this is the guy you're talking about? Do you remember the day you stood outside Lazarus's tomb? Remember, and Lazarus had been in there so long that everyone could kind of smell him decomposing. He was grossing everybody out. And Jesus called this dead guy out of the tomb. Do you not remember that, Judas? Do you remember the day that Jesus spit on the ground and put muddy spit or spitty mud on someone's eyes and they could see? Do you understand that this is the man whose hands have touched the lame and they could walk afterwards? Do you understand who this guy is? And do you think that you have the power to hand him over? Seriously, where do you get that idea from? See, when you think about it like that, Judas looked pretty silly, didn't he? We hate Judas. Yeah. But don't we do the same thing sometimes? It becomes clear when we consider the way we approach God in prayer. We treat God sometimes as someone we think we can manipulate. Someone we can call upon when we want him to do our bidding. We, we call upon God when we're worried that we'll need his help. But we like to keep God on the sidelines when we'd rather not think about him. Usually when we're up to something a bit sketchy. When we have a scary appointment at the doctor, we're bringing God with us, of course. But when we're heading off to spring break, traveling out of town on a business trip, we say, God, you you, you can stay out of this one. I got this. We call on God when we're about to close a deal. But we kind of leave God on the sidelines when we're negotiating the terms of that deal. We ignore God when we're screaming at the kids just because they're being annoying. But we cry out to God when the kids are in danger or when they're rebelling against our authority. Wow, we, we really do treat God that way. Well, we actually don't treat God that way. You wanna know why? See, that God, the God that we think we can control, the God we think we can push around, that God doesn't exist. That's not actually God. Whoever we're talking to, that ain't God. We're all watching the news and reading all this stuff. We've had this wave of violence in our nation. And it's interesting how every time there's a national tragedy, people very derisively question God. It's always God's fault. They cry out, if there's a God, how can these things happen? How could God let bad things happen to these good people? And then they use their frustration as an excuse to not believe in God or not follow God. They never understand that the God to which they're referring never existed, never, ever existed. You will not find that God in the Old Testament or the New Testament. The God to which they're referring, the God that they can call upon when they want but ignore when it's inconvenient isn't the one true God at all. See, Judas clearly believed in that God because he thought that he was going to be able to hand over Jesus against Jesus' will and he was going to be able to hand him over to the people that wanted to do him harm. Well, Judas was about to learn the hard way A lesson that we can all learn the easy way. And isn't it fun to learn lessons the easy way? We can learn the lesson that God's hand cannot be forced and God's will cannot be thwarted. 
for 2,000 years, people have tried to figure out why Judas did what Jesus did. Why Judas thought he could force Jesus to come out and proclaim himself king of Israel. It's a mystery as to why he thought he could do that. Maybe Judas believed that if he delivered Jesus over to his enemies, he could kind of pressure Jesus to step up and and grab the mantle of king. Maybe Judas believed that there was no way that Jesus would, would let it go too far, would allow anything bad to happen to himself or allow anything bad to happen to his disciples. Because think about it, looking back in the scripture, every single time before, Jesus was able to slip away before anything bad happened to him, before they tried to arrest him. He'd done it before. And maybe Judas just assumed that his actions would force Jesus' hand. And by the way, Judas assumed that his actions would make him richer in the process. So anyway, during the Passover... Judas heard that Jesus was going to take the 12 over to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. So Judas slipped out of the dinner early and he sent a message to the Pharisees and to the chief priests. And here's what he said. He said, okay, guys, this is a paraphrase. This is not coming from the Bible. Okay, guys, get ready. You're gonna have to move quickly. We're going to the Garden of Gethsemane. Meet us there tonight. It's gonna be dark and it's going to be confusing. So bring torches and bring soldiers, and I'll be there, and you can arrest the guy that I give a kiss on the cheek. All right, you got it, guys? So they came, and they arrested Jesus, and they took him away, and the disciples scattered, and Judas left also. And Matthew tells us what happened next. Now we're in chapter 27. Early in the morning, the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans to have Jesus executed. Now you go, wait a minute, what about a trial? Like, made their plans for a trial, how about? No, no trial, they didn't need a trial. They'd already decided he was guilty. They already tried him months ago in their minds. He was already tried in the court of their public opinion. They're just gonna execute him. Verse two, so they bound Jesus and they led him away. And then things began to fall apart for Judas. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. Judas had turned Jesus in to the Jewish religious leaders, but they didn't have the power to have Jesus put to death. Now, it's likely that Judas didn't realize that. Some believe that it was Judas' intent that the arrest of Jesus would have forced Jesus to reveal that he is indeed the Messiah. It would have forced his hand. And then Judas' proximity to Jesus the Messiah would inure to his benefit and make him even richer. But the next thing Judas knew, Jesus had been turned over to the Roman governor. He turned over, was turned over to Pilate to be killed. Scholars have surmised that Judas didn't expect Pilate to get involved at all. It meant that it was going to be Rome. Pilate represented Rome, and it was going to be Rome that determined Jesus' fate. And control over the outcome was thereby taken out of Judas' hands. It was no longer in the hands of the Jewish religious leaders. It was now in the hands of the Romans over whom he had no influence. We go to verse 3. When Judas, who betrayed Jesus, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized. This is he, Judas, was seized with remorse. And he returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. He did not expect Rome to get involved. And when Rome got involved, Judas had a change of heart. We 
which led Judas to confess. Matthew 27, 4, Judas said, I have sinned, for I have betrayed innocent blood. However, at least for his life, it was too late. The religious leaders wanted Jesus dead, and they didn't care that Judas was feeling some remorse because they said to him, what's that to us? Why should we care about that? That's your problem. That's a you problem, not an us problem. That's if that was written today, that's what that would say. Even if at that moment, Judas had a change of heart and wanted to take it all back, it was too late. There are just certain decisions that once you make them, you can't unmake them. We've all made those decisions. So what did Judas do? Verse five, he threw the money into the temple and he left. Then he went away and hanged himself. See, for Judas, this was a situation that was, that was impossible for him to live with. So he took his own life. Judas misread the entire thing. He misread everything. It was not supposed to happen the way it happened. But the religious leaders, eh, they were nonplussed. They were not impressed. Verse six, the chief priests picked up the coins and said, what are we going to do with this stuff? It's against the law to put this money into the treasury since it's blood money. So you go, that's weird. You ever notice that's in there before? What happened? Well, as it turns out, pursuant to an obscure regulation that supported an obscure Jewish law, a law that wasn't found in the Torah, it was a law added later. It was found in sort of the fine print of the Jewish law, if you will. The Jewish leaders who decided to put Jesus to death, even though they didn't have the authority to do so, they also didn't have the authority to take that blood money, which was returned by Judas, and put it back in the general operating fund. They couldn't use it. So what'd they do? Verse seven, they decided to use the money to buy a potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. We can't use the money for the operation of our, of our religious business, but we can do something with it. We can give it to a good cause. What's a potter's field? A potter's field was merely a place where they would bury a foreigner who died while visiting Jerusalem. Now, why would you even have to think of such a thing? Well, in those days, you, you couldn't just transport bodies all over the place. They didn't preserve them very well. They couldn't transport them very quickly. You can't transport a dead body back to wherever the person is from. It doesn't work that way. So they have to bury them where they die. Verse eight, that's why it has been called the field of blood to this day. So why does Matthew say this? Like, why does he tell us this? Well, he tells us this because it's his way of saying, this stuff is true. Come and check this out for yourself. If you come here, I will show you where that potter's field is. I will show you where the field is that was purchased for those 30 pieces of silver used to betray Jesus. So that's sort of a, I can show you this is all true. And Matthew wrote all of this while the eyewitnesses were still alive. Okay, so Judas was gone and Jesus had been arrested and then he was tried and then he was convicted and then he was crucified. Which means that Judas's plan to force God's hand failed. Failed miserably. It was a dumb plan. But God's will was still accomplished through Judas's horrible decision. It's as if God's hand can't be forced. It's as if God's will can't be thwarted. Hmm. Interesting, that. So what does it have to do with me? What does it have to do with you? 
Well, here it is. When we begin following Jesus, we all start like this. Here's what we do. We tell God, I have a plan and I'm not letting go of it. And I need you, God, to help me with my plan. We say, I have a will. And God, I'd like to think that your will and my will line up. But if they don't, my will be done. But as you follow Jesus for a while, along the way, you begin to recognize that from time to time, there's going to be a conflict between my will and thy will. And it's in that conflict that you learn a lot about yourself. It's in that conflict that Judas and his story connects to us and our story. Because in Judas's story, there were competing agendas. And in our story, there will always be competing agendas between what we want and what God wants for us. And eventually, we come to realize that we can't have things our way and God's way. And when this realization hits, it'll feel to us like there's something that we're sure that we have to do or something that we're sure we shouldn't do. And in that moment, we can feel that tension. We can feel that conflict. And it's in that moment we'll know. We'll just know what we're supposed to say or do. But we'll also know that it hurts us if we say or do it. See, we know there'll be a price to pay. It's in that moment, it'll feel like a death. Whenever you can't do something that you wanted to do, it feels like a death. But in that moment, we might just have to walk away from something that we don't want to walk away from. But we'll also know we have no other choice. And the good news is, we needn't worry about this. Because it's in these moments that we'll find our own defining moments like we talked about last week. It's in these moments that we have to make a choice between our will and God's will. And when we choose God's will, we'll get to see whose we really are or to whom we really belong. It's in these moments that we move on from being God consumers to being God followers. And it's in these moments that all we can do is trust God. I don't know why this is clicking. All right. To do as he promised. And it's when our little mustard seed faith intersects with God's immense faithfulness that we realize that God has become alive to us. It's in those moments we get to the place where we can earnestly say, God, I want what you want more than I want what I want. That's the place we're trying to get to. That's what a Jesus follower does. So how do we get there? Well, it's not easy. I'd be, I'd be telling you a fib if I told you it was easy. But we can do it. We've all heard stories of people doing it. We've all heard stories of it happening. We've seen couples stay together and work out their difficulties because they were Christians. What is happening, guys? And they said, you know what? We're going to figure this out. And after they've succeeded, we've looked at them and said, wow, that was amazing. That was inspirational. We've all seen friends make socially damaging sacrifices because of their faith. And after they've succeeded, we've gone, wow, that's incredible. 
I'd like to think I can make that same sacrifice if I'm ever in that same situation. I'd love to think that I would have the same faith and discipline and self-control to do what they did. They acted just like Jesus' followers are called to act. And it's a beautiful thing. And this is important. Because when you find yourself in that situation as a Jesus follower, when you realize that you're faced with a tough decision, a decision that has the potential to define your faith, it's very easy to tap out. Hello. Oh, hi. That's better. It's really easy to give up in those situations. It's very easy to tap out. It's very easy to say, God, I know what I'm supposed to do, but I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. I want to want what you want, God. I want to make the decision that you want me to make or to take the action that you want me to take. But God, sorry, I can't do it. But once you understand today's lesson, you can begin to move yourself down the road, that road to following God, if in those moments, you just take a beat, just take a moment. Waiting a second is such a powerful tool before you're about to get angry, before you're about to make a decision, before you're about to do something that you might regret. Waiting a second is such a great tool because in that situation, if we can understand this lesson, if we can take a beat and pause and say, I really don't want to say no to that opportunity, God. I really don't want to turn down that position, God. I really don't want to stay in this relationship or leave this relationship, God. But God, I want to want what you want more than what I want. So I'm going to be still and I'm going to let you be God. I'm going to open my hands, and I'm going to wait for you to do your will through me. Think about this. Jesus didn't stop Judas from doing what Judas intended to do. And Judas didn't stop Jesus from doing what Jesus intended to do. And it follows that God won't stop you from doing what you intend to do either but it also follows that doing what you intend to do won't stop God from doing what he intends to do either. Judas went down that road that apparently he wished he did not do. He wished he could have gotten it back, but there are some things that can't be undone. They can be forgiven, but they can't be undone. And I'm guessing, and this is just a guess, but I'm guessing that if Judas could have done it all over, he would have chosen to do God's will rather than trying to impose his own will on God. Blessed is the one who, when they have the opportunity, blessed is the one who, when they come to that fork in the road, blessed is the one who, when they feel that tension, gives in to the agenda of God and chooses to do God's will rather than imposing their own will. Because at the end of the day, you can't force the hand of God and you can't thwart the will of God. And that is a very good thing because that means that God is God and you're not. And I'm not. And 
God has invited us into an adventure that is so much bigger and so much better than anything we could ever orchestrate for ourselves. And knowing that, why? Why would we waste one minute of time trying to orchestrate anything for ourselves? And when we choose to follow God instead of ourselves, we're going to look back with joy. When we see just how much grander God's plan for us was than our designs for ourselves. And that's why we need to follow. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for preserving this text. We thank you for allowing us this opportunity to go through it and really try to understand what had happened and what that means for us. Father, help us learn to follow you and reflect your will in our lives. Father, help us when we find ourselves in that tension point to choose you, to choose your way, and to follow you with our lives. We love you, God. We praise you, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.